Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding all the way back to December 13th, 2011, uh, episode 802, <clears throat> which was called Permaculture Misconception versus Reality. Uh, this episode was originally inspired by an article <clears throat> written... Uh, by a guy out of the UK. You'll hear the article read right on the air today, but I can tell you without even looking it up, I remember um, the opening line, permaculture, it's no good, I don't get it. Something to that effect, I don't get permaculture, something like that. He should have stopped right there. That would have been a perfect stopping point for him. I don't get it, because he doesn't get it. And when I read this article, I was like, oh my God, God, talk about just like, and the guy's a biologist, and he's a relatively intelligent person, and he writes rather technically accurate, and just like, but everything was wrong. And when I read it, I wasn't angry, you know, it's not like it's, you know, just some big meanie said something bad about my thing I like, you know, I'm going to be upset. What it actually did is it made me realize why I had been evangelizing permaculture, for so long and have people constantly saying, but you can't do this or it won't do that or can't feed people. And you're like, what are you talking about? And it's, it's, it's because if you are talking to someone that doesn't know what permaculture is and they've seen it from the outsider, they've seen a thing, right? They've seen a food forest. Well, then that's what permaculture is. Or they, they, they saw this thing about permaculture and they saw, you know, Chicken tractoring. Well, then that's what they, they tend not to understand the holistic nature of the design science that is permaculture. And that's, that's what permaculture really is. It's systems thinking and a design science. And as long as we obey the ethics and the directive, everything that we do with intention toward feeding the world, rebounding energy, etc., is permaculture. It's a giant wardrobe. And all of these things that people think individually are permaculture are just one shirt inside that wardrobe or one pair of pants inside that wardrobe. And you think about like little girls when they have these things when they grow up where they have like a doll that they dress up or what have you. And they can make it look all these different ways. And it all depends on what they want that day from that doll to be. Does it going to be Farmer Barbie or is it going to be Glamour Barbie, right? And that's... That's what permaculture is. The permaculture concept is, well, what do you want? Do you want a farm? Well, we could totally build a full-on permaculture farm that, that maybe the majority of its production is actually in annuals, such as amaranth or even maize, corn. We can do that, potatoes, etc. We can do that. Now, it won't be just that. And there will be zoned out things. And we will... Also, if we're going to build a permaculture farm, well, it's not just going to be a place that produces a crop to go to market. It's going to be a system designed to first feed the farmers. So the farmers that are running the farm have one less thing to worry about. Their food is going to be produced. So there's going to be a market garden type situation or something like that that is highly diverse. But it doesn't mean that our zone three, our large zone, might not be in main crops. Or it might not be a system where we're maybe doing grazing combined with annuals. There's one guy that I met in Iowa, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know that he's doing permaculture. He has no idea. Um, in fact, it's, it's Missouri. Yeah, right on the Iowa border. Um, but he, he, he doesn't know it's permaculture. I think he does now. But he came up with this, <clears throat> this method that he's using. And I believe the strips are 18 feet wide. And it's a row of corn and then, let's say, a legume. And then a row of corn and then some sort of a cover crop. And then a row of corn and then uh, a, a grass. And every year, those rows move and shift and change what they are. And the corn goes over one and everything flips back and keeps going through. And he's, he's farming 18 acres like this. And he's got, I think, like a 100-acre piece of farm. 
And he's been farming these 18 acres this way. He broke off this piece and developed this method. And it's designed so basically the tractor makes two passes and that row is cut or harvested or whatever. He's thought very, very well thought out on this. And it's all done on contour, by the way. And he's producing this corn. It's that the orange corn that's really high in beta carotene. It sells for a niche price and what have you. He's building a mill so he can self-mill it and he can mill for other farmers. And he's been doing this for quite a few years now. And he sent a soil sample in to the Soil Conservation Service, and they got in touch with him and said, you're going to get in trouble. And he said, what are you talking about I'm going to get in trouble? You you do know that there, there's very little native prairie left, and we have conservation programs, and you're not supposed to be plowing up native prairie soil. And the guy says, it's not native prairie soil, it's my farm. And they literally didn't believe him because the quality of the soil was something they had never seen before. And he hadn't even started running animals on it yet, but that's the plan to eventually run animals in the laneways between the corn. See, now that's permaculture. Now you're producing meat and that system would easily have handled running chickens in front of, or behind cattle. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that system would handle that. Or it could have been behind pork, or you could have run a leader follower, follower system running poultry, pork, and beef in that system. It would have been, it would have been no strain on it. It would have made everything that was wonderful about it better. He didn't call it permaculture. He just wanted to grow highly nutritious food for his wife and himself. He was an engineer that decided, I want to go be a farmer. When we, block ourselves in and we lock off something as diverse as permaculture to being a food forest or being a swale or being a hugel culture mound. We've, we've lost sight of the forest for the trees quite literally. And that's what this episode's all about. If you're new to permaculture, I think you'll enjoy it. If you're an old hat at it, I think you'll enjoy it. And I definitely have thought about it. We haven't done a lot on permaculture this last year, 2017. When I come back in 2018, We'll be taking some uh, some different looks at permaculture at a higher level of design um, as a design science. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and rewind back about six years here. December 13th, 2011, episode 802, Permaculture Misconceptions versus Reality. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, 2011, and this is episode... 802 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, today we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects a little differently than we ever had before. We're going to look at some counter-arguments on it, and I'm going to hopefully destroy, smash, burn, and d just demolish those objections. But I'm going to do it in a new way, hopefully with a better understanding of the people making those objections. Because you can't just call people stupid head and expect them to go away and say, you know what, you're right now. You have to actually understand the objections. And I feel on this subject, there's been times where I've explained away the objection without understanding it. It wasn't that I was wrong. It's I didn't understand the real question. And that subject is permaculture. And it goes back to an article uh, that I received uh, through my Google Alert system I'll talk to you about in a bit that like got it all wrong, like everything wrong. And even where they're right, they're wrong because they're wires are crossed. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute, though, and we'll get to why I think it's so important and why I think it's definitely a survival topic. With that, we've got the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's get into the main subject of today's show. Um, again, I, I have these Google alerts set. I have them set for things like pandemic, right? Uh, natural disaster, man-made disaster, nuclear threat. I mean, I have all kinds of stuff. Every time I find something interesting, uh, they, they pop stuff up in, in Google Alerts, and I, and I look at all the stories that come up there in both the blog side and the uh, and the news side. I'll look at it and go, if like 9 out of 10 of the results are things I'd want to see, let me set up an alert for this. And it's really easy to do. You go to Google, you run the search, you see the results, and then you click, you know, email me alerts about this, and they'll email you alerts until you turn it off. 
Well, it's not just the things that blow up and scare us in the dark of the night that I have stuff, you know. We talk a lot about self-reliance, self-sufficiency, homesteading, and stuff like that. So, of course, one of the terms that I've stuck in there is permaculture. So I get this email alert, and it's for an article called Traditional Farming in the Rainforest. And I think, this is interesting. And I get there, it's a scathing retort on permaculture. Just permaculture, it's our idiots. We're all a bunch of dumb idiots. And we don't know what we're talking about. And the whole world would starve if it was up to us. And we don't know what we're doing. And, 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 uh, I'll tell you what. It's just, it's all wrong on its face. And who cares? Right? Who cares that one idiot from the UK, by the way, named Ken Thompson is a dumbass and he doesn't know what permaculture is? Normally I wouldn't care. But see, here's the thing. I've been getting objections, and the one person out there listening to this today that thinks this is all just about you, no, it's not just about you. <laughs> He's a good friend and all, too. But I've been getting a lot of feedback from a lot of people recently telling me, well, permaculture can't do this. Permaculture won't do that. Permaculture won't do this. And in finally talking to some people, including the one person that, that, that knows who I'm talking about right now, and reading this article, I'm getting a better understanding of what people are really objecting to. And the problem is what they're objecting to is wrong. They just like they're objecting to things that don't exist. They're objecting to rules that aren't there. They're objecting to beliefs they have that do not actually enter into the permaculture world. And why is that important? Well, because that makes it very difficult to actually spread the message and actually teach people and get them on board. If you think I'm saying the way that we, you know, the way that we uh, can save the world is by killing kittens and sticking them inside dogs, uh, you'll think this guy's retarded and you'll go on. But if I'm actually saying something completely different, but that's the message you're getting out of it, then you see I'm messing up because I'm not I'm not explaining it right. So I'm going to try to explain it right today and I want to read this guy's article. But before I do, I want to hit you smack with that two-by-four I promised you about why this is a survival subject. I want to tell you in a brief a period of time what permaculture is without going into how you do anything and, and actually not even limiting it to agriculture or growing food. Permaculture is very simple. It is a prime directive and three ethics, and that equals permaculture. And we can take that and then we can apply it. We can use all these design principles to do it in agricultural space. We can use similar design principles or even the same design principles. We can design a business with it. We can design a town with it. We can design a community with it. And not just the food. That's the important thing. It's a system of design based on these things. First, there's a prime directive. And the, the prime directive is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. The first ethic is we have to care for the earth. And if you think it's like environmental hoo-ha, it's not. Look down, below your feet is the earth. If we don't have that anymore, we're screwed. We must take care of the earth. If we do things that damage the earth, eventually we won't be able to do them anymore because we'll run out of things to damage and there'll be nothing left. So I think we can all agree that it does make sense to take responsibility for ourselves and our children. And I think that most people that listen to this show are responsible people that feel that's a great driving uh, directive to have. That taking care of the earth makes sense. I don't think you'd be happy if somebody backed up a garbage truck and started dumping garbage in the middle of a beautiful woodlot in the middle of your town. That would be one example of extreme not taking care of the earth. Right? Okay, so we, we can go that far. The next one is care of people. We have to take care of people. So we don't take care of the earth to the, to the uh, duress of people. If it's harming people, it's not permaculture. If it's harming the earth, it's not permaculture. And if it's not being responsible for yourself and your children, it's not permaculture. The last one is return of surplus. It's the one that some people go off on a hippie tangent with. I'm not even going to go there. Return of surplus is simple, that when you are done with any system, there's something left over. That is a yield or a profit or what we normally consider a waste. It really is only one of those things. And a yield and profit are kind of the same thing. But a yield will just generally say it's something we keep for ourselves. A profit is something that we sell into an economy and reap a reward for. And a waste is something that we then make somebody else's problem and have to get rid of it. So in, in permaculture, we take the waste and we recycle it by some means. So if we have a bunch of extra stuff and nobody wants it, we compost it. All right, so, but we do something with it. We don't stick it into a landfill. All right, so return of surplus, care of earth, care of people, responsibility. 
That's it. That's it. So when we go with the agricultural principles of permaculture, they're all off of that. If we build a business with permaculture, and I'll tell you what, I believe my business is a permaculture business. Survival Podcast is a permaculture business. I believe that I'm taking responsibility for myself and that of my children by what I do, and I believe I'm helping you do the same thing. I believe I'm teaching practices that, that result in good care of the earth without being uh, some global warming nut job that thinks that your, that your, your breath is warming the planet. We can still take care of the earth. I believe I'm helping take care of people because people are making positive impacts in their lives. And what little waste we produce, I believe we recycle. Because right? we don't produce a lot of waste. But I believe that we actually are returning a ton of surplus. Because we're, we're creating a whole bunch of knowledge and people are taking that knowledge and getting their own blogs and going out and doing their own projects. So it's a permaculture model business. So hopefully that right there takes you to a totally different view of permaculture. But the, the first objective I have, or first uh, objection I get, one, permaculture is not a survival topic, Jack. Okay, let's go with that one right now before we get to Mr. Retard's uh, uh, article. Permaculture involves taking responsibility for yourself, caring for the planet, caring for your fellow man and yourself, and making sure that we use the resources that we have. If we don't do that, we're screwed. It is survival. It is survival. Then the other one is, well, permaculture can't possibly feed the planet and save the world. Well, if we can't save the world by caring for it, if we can't save the people by caring for them, if we can't save people by being responsible for ourselves as individuals and for that of our children, and if we can't save the world through the return of surplus, exactly how would we do it? So we might as well all go on a drinking binge and just admit that it's over. So hopefully those two things alone have, like I said, smack. Two by four, oak plank in the bean. Let me read this guy's article. It will be hard for me to do, but I want to read the whole thing. It's not that long. I want to give him a fair hearing, and I want you to listen to what he says with an open mind, even though it's hard for me to do. All right, here we go. By Ken Thompson at thetelegraph.co.uk. Sorry, but it's no good. I don't get permaculture. Okay, I'm going to do this one time and one time only. I'm not going to interrupt the reading except for there. I want you to know, though, that I feel that he just told the whole truth And he got it exactly right, and he really doesn't need to say anything else, because that's what it is. He doesn't get it. And everything after this can go back to that, and now I'll just read the article without being a jerk to him or anything like that. And the more I read, the less I get it. According to an article at the, in the RHS magazine, the garden permaculture is a state of mind or a way of thinking. It involves using the energies of the environment rather than fighting them. So far, so meaningless. What actually is it? Examples of permaculture mentioned in the article include growing ornamentals and edible plants together, composting, collecting rainwater and buffering your greenhouse against extreme temperatures by putting a few large containers of water in it. These are all well and good, but surely just examples of ordinary good gardening. On the websites of the Permaculture Association, I quickly learned that permaculture will make the world a better place, and me a better person likely is not. But still nothing about what it is. Back to the garden, which tells me that the primary feature of many permaculture gardens is a forest garden. And I can learn about that from the Agroforestry Research Trust in Devon. From their website, I learned that agroforestry is an economic system based on trees, shrubs, perennial plants, which fits with the deviation of permaculture from a permanent agriculture, i.e. gardening based on not digging things up. Now we're getting somewhere, but before we go any further, some essential background. At a global scale, the pattern of plant productivity depends on temperature and water. So a world map of productivity reflects that. Productive where it's warm and wet, unproductive where it's cold and dry. At a smaller scale, so soil fertility is crucial. Plants grow fast on deep and fertile soils, but slowly on shallow, infertile soils. So throughout history, farms and anyone trying to grow food have done two things. First, they have tried to alleviate whatever is limiting local productivity, usually by irrigation or adding fertilizers. But raw productivity itself is of little use. If seedlings I keep pulling up are any guide, if I left my veg plot for a few years, it would quickly become ashwood with an understory of holly and yew. Certainly produ very productive in terms of biomass per annuum, but not particularly edible, at least not by me. If Even if I could live on ash keys and holly berries, I think the novelty would wear off quickly. Which brings me to the second thing farmers strive to do, which is to divert as much productivity as possible into forms we like to eat, essentially roots, tubers, seed, fruits, and leaves. This boils not down not only to growing the right plants, but also constantly selecting the best and tastiest ones. Back to agroforestry.co.uk, which describes typical forest garden in terms of sorts of plants you might grow, 
in all the different layers, from the ground up to the tree canopy. Startlingly, uh, very little of this is actually edible, but maybe I should not be surprised. The forest garden is supposed to provide fruits, nuts, edible leaves, spices, medicinal plant products, poles, fibers, uh, fibers for tying, basketry materials, honey, fuel wood, fodder, mulches, game, and sap products. The trouble is the average modern gardener has little use of basketry materials, fodder, game, or sap products, nor are some of the other more useful products exactly abundant. The only nut mentioned is the chestnut, which is a non-starter where I live. Hazel isn't messaged, but it wouldn't matter if it were, since where I live, hazelnuts are just another way of feeding the squirrels. What a retard. I said I wouldn't do it. I'm sorry. The only other edible leaves mentioned are uh, campanula and lime. In blind tests, both would c come a distant second to lettuce or spinach. In fact, when you get down to it, forest garden is all about fruit. 24 of the 34 wooded plants listed are fruit bushes or trees, so maybe growing your own toilet paper should be a priority as well. Realistic sources of starch are virtually absent, presumably since all the candidates can strive the principles of permaculture, they require cultivation. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. I'm going to do it. So someday, somewhere, uh, so, so somebody somewhere still needs to be growing potatoes and cereals unless you never want another chip, buddy. How does forest gardening stack up in terms of actually keeping body and soul together? In an entertaining YouTube video, Martin Crawford takes us on a tour of a forest garden at Darlington and Devon. As one point he says an acre of forest should feed four to five people, maybe, but he also says that our near relative, the orangutan, can live on forest leaves and fruits. Why can't we? Good question, but the highest density orangutans ever recorded in very productive rainforests of Sumatra was seven uh, to ten per square kilometer. So to save you the trouble, I'll do the math. That's .04 orangutans per acre. Forest gardens can be beautiful and great for wildlife, and they can do lots of wonderful things like store carbon, <laughs> reduce nutrient losses, purify water, and regulate local climate. But the orangutans are telling us something important about how many human beings could be supported by a world without conventional agriculture. All right. It was hard. I cracked a few times, but... Like I said, and those of you that actually know the subject of permaculture are, are thinking to yourselves, man, I, I, I don't even know what to say because everything is wrong. Let's go with the big objection. Well, okay, so permaculture is forest gardening, and that's dumbass, all right? It just really is. I'm sorry. Forest gardening is permaculture, but permaculture isn't forest gardening. If you have a great, awesome uh, annual vegetable plot, you know, right outside your door, full of all different types of annual vegetables that you cultivate every year, it's permaculture too. And I mean two is an also, not two is the number. Right? If you have, um, uh, in, 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 typically we would do this in a zone three, but that's not even the constraint that some people think it is. But if zone three you have a main crop like a grain, like an amaranth, or you have potato or anything grow on a much larger scale, surrounded by all these other buffers and things that help deal with pests, that's still permaculture. So to say that we can't grow grain or we can't grow annual crops and that be permaculture is a complete misunderstanding. Now, the concept of not digging the soil, we dig a hole and we put the food into it. What we don't do is till the soil. And see, this is, this is the kind of the problem here. People like this guy. Look at what permaculturists are doing, and they see one-tenth of one percent of it, and then they want to pick it apart, and they only understand one-tenth of one percent, and they, they ignore the other 99.9 percent .9 of the entire system. So you look at that and say, well, if we don't tell the soil, how the hell are we going to do all this? I mean, God damn, you know, they just, it, it just doesn't make sense. Come on. we got to tell the soil. No, you don't, right? The soil actually is never tilled by nature. And this is where the forest gardening thing falls apart for people, and they don't, they don't get it. Forest gardening isn't growing a forest. Forest gardening is an understanding of what a forest is and how a forest works. And I could walk you through a garden that you would look at and go, that's a typical garden. There's not even a tree there. And I could tell you it's still a forest garden. And you go, wait a minute, that, that, that can't be right. It's not a forest. Whereas forest gardening is an understanding of how the systems work where I could take a, a very small bush and substitute it for the canopy layer, and I could take smaller plantings and substitute them at different layers, put climbers and things like that. Essentially, a three-sisters garden is a forest garden. It doesn't have all the layers. Not that it couldn't. We could add a few things and do that. But we think about a three-sisters garden, uh, traditional, 
Just go there. We've got squash, we've got beans, and we've got corn. And the corn grows up, forms canopy. The squash goes out, forms a ground cover. The beans represent a climbing layer. Now, we don't have a root yield, a rhizome yield, but the beans are actually producing a rhizome yield in nitrogen, which is helping to support the corn and the squash so that we're not required to fertilize. So right there we have four of the layers. And then you would also say, well, there's a sub-canopy layer, sub-tree layer. So, for instance, I might have a great big apple tree and some other overstory trees, and then in amongst them I might have trees like pawpaw, which are an understory tree. That's that second layer. Well, where's that at, Jack? Well, come on. Let's let's think about this. The squash doesn't just cover the ground. It does grow up, and it does represent kind of a second-tiered layer in there. And then we could even say, well, what about a herbaceous layer? Well, we've got all this herbaceous growth, and if we plant that system, other herbs are going to naturally end up, and plants are going to naturally end up growing in there. We don't have to weed them out. We get enough suppression that the stuff that does show up isn't really going to do any harm because of the ground covering effect of the squash holding it in. So there's our herbaceous layer. So all of a sudden, you actually see the layers are there. The layer systems in permaculture are not about you have to have X, Y, and Z put into this system. It's about these are the spaces. And as I expand the vertical space up or collapse it down, I change the relationship of everything else. It's a lot like zones. This is another thing that I get from people. Well, I don't want to zone this or I don't want to zone that. Then you don't have to have one. Or people look at a book or a website and they see zones and it looks like a bullseye target, this concentric circle thing going out. But the reality is that those zones, your zone one, is actually the place you're going to spend the most of your time. You're going to take the most trips there and you're going to use the stuff the most. So it makes sense to make that as closely located to your structure as possible. And zone two, you're going to spend a lot of time in, but not as much. So... When we look at something like annual gardening, of course we want to pull that back into our zone one. We're going to go there you know, all throughout the year cutting stuff and eating stuff and using stuff. It's where we do our heaviest mulching. If we're doing irrigation at all, it's where we're doing our most intensive irrigation. Um, it's the part that requires the most amount of management. You know, we probably want to put a, a chicken house at the, the lake, you know, like the, right at the, kind of the area that is kind of nebulous. Is it zone one, zone two? I'm not really sure, but it's probably pretty close into the, the house. It's definitely got good pathways to it because I'm going to go there a lot, right? But if uh, my wood pile, you know, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. So it's might be a little further out in the peripherals of zone two. But those zones change. They change based on the direction that the house is pointing. They change direct, uh, you know, based on the elevation. Uh, zone one to the rear of my house is about oh, 12 feet long because right there it drops off in a vertical drop. It's not vertical, but it's like 45 degrees. And then it goes down to and it kind of changes over and it's it's a slope and it goes all the way down the back of my property in a fairly steep slope. Doesn't work for zone one. It doesn't get good sunlight. Got a lot I can do back there. So it'll all change. But I want to go more into this this. I, I'm not going to insult him because he just doesn't. He's not really an ass clown. He's he's ignorant, and I mean that in the the most positive way that you can. Let's go through some of his things. Um, here he says. Examples of permaculture mentioned in the article include growing ornamentals and edible plants together, uh, composting, collecting rainwater, and buffering your greenhouse against extreme temperatures by putting a few large containers of water in it. These are all well and good, but surely examples of ordinary good gardening. Well, maybe if you know to do them, first of all. See, because that's the reality. Anything you do in permaculture, you can find somebody doing it somewhere else that doesn't know anything about permaculture. You can find that somebody did it 5,000 years ago, and you can find that nature did it. And, and, and this is the big thing, that when people look at anything in this world with a critical eye, they have a desire to find flaws with it, and they have a desire to condense it into a single thing that you can examine. And they want it to be static and stationary. And it's very difficult for them to critique it if they'll open their mind to the fact that it's an evolving system moving forward. So I have recently had people ask me things like, well, don't you think permaculture can be improved? Uh, no, I don't believe permaculture can be improved. I believe it can evolve forward. And those are different. I know that you don't think they are, but they are. Because one of the primary principles of, of permaculture is observe and accept feedback. So that means that the system today will be different than it is that it was yesterday. And tomorrow will be different than it is today. It will constantly change. It will constantly move. It will constantly evolve forward. This contention that these are all just good gardening practices 
rather than the objection is the point. The permaculturist will take anything that works, that doesn't harm the earth, harm people, returns surplus, and takes responsibility for themselves and their children. Anything that meets that criteria goes in the wardrobe, and then we can dress to the occasion. I think wardrobe is how uh, Watton's explaining it now. It's a wardrobe. And you might want one goal for your property, and I want one goal for my property, and somebody might want to actually focus more on large crops, and we can design all of those systems and any single system that's there. Um, he also says that um, uh, from a website, I learned that agroforestry is an agronomic system based on trees, shrubs, and perennial plants, which fits with the deviation of permaculture from permanent agriculture, i.e. gardening based on not digging things up. Well, in permaculture, we do dig things up. What we don't do is dig the soil every day. And I think it's important that we understand why tilling soil seems to work. When you till soil, it's full of life. It's absolutely full of life. And when you till it, you kill it. When you till it, you kill it. Please remember that. It's the truth. When you till soil and you disrupt that ecosystem down, or imagine your little soil life form. I don't even know if you're a nematode or a bacterium or, or a fungi or whatever you are. And you've, you've carved out your little world. And there's water. You might be existing in a water bubble surrounding a single piece of soil. A single soil fragment will actually be a little tiny dot, and around that will be a bubble of water. And in that is like a miniature sea, a miniature world, and you're in there with all your bacteria buddies, and you're hanging out, and it's broken open. Now, I'm not saying we should weep for the bacterium. I mean, billions of them die every day. That's their purpose, but there's a system in which they die, and a system in which they rejuvenate. And when we till the soil, we break that cycle. So all this death occurs. Now, think about what composting is. Composting is taking waste things and breaking them down. Death. Excrement, right? We, we compost manure. It's all about death and breaking stuff down. So when we till soil, we compost everything in that soil. We plant onto it. We grow on their bodies. But we've disrupted the ecosystem. And if we don't reestablish the ecosystem through mulch and mulching and, and other practices and continue to add new organic matter back to the soil and, and rejuvenating them, then not so many of them come back. Some of them come back, though. It's just one tilling, so we haven't killed it yet. And then we till it again next year. And we till it again next year. And we till it again next year. And even if we start trying to say we're going to do it organically and we start throwing manure and we till manure and wood chips and all kinds of stuff in, if we till it and we till it and we till it, eventually we've disrupted the ecosystem to a point where it almost doesn't matter what we put in there anymore. And even the corn farmer in Pennsylvania who you drive by his farm in the spring and the whole thing smells like cow manure. Because he's spreading, because he's got free cow manure. Hey, it's nutrient. He puts it on his field. And that year, right before he harvests his corn, you go out in the middle of his field and you dig up his soil and it's dust. It's dusty. It doesn't look like dirt. You, you rub it between your hands and you smell it and there's almost no smell at all to it. It's like red clay. It doesn't make sense because it's a place with the place has beautiful soil. If we just go a few feet away into the woodlot, you, you pull the leaves aside and it's black and crumbly. And it's got structure. And it doesn't matter at that point how much that you try to stick more material in there. If we keep plowing it and plowing it and plowing it, we keep destroying those little worlds and they won't come back. But we don't have to destroy those worlds, not even to grow corn. But if we grow a thousand acres of corn, there's virtually no other way to do it. So shifting to a, a permaculture type system is not about getting rid of main crops. It's about reducing the size of the average farm so that the average farmer can make a living from 40 to 80 acres like people used to do. Because we have people right now that own 10,000 acres and farm corn on it and make less than $25,000 doing that. With the subsidies and everything included. That's their profit. They're not full-time farmers, even with thousands and thousands of acres. You have to think about the failure of a system that works that way. And how long we can depend on it. Where if we had a system with an 80-acre farm, and the guy was growing like four acres of awesome corn, just awesome sauce corn, right? And he was getting a premium for those. And he was also growing potatoes. And, and he was growing hundreds of crops, both perennial and annual. How much better could he do? Now, would he have to hire people to come in and pick instead of just driving a machine through there? Yeah, but he could afford to pay them and still make more money. And that would be good for the economy. And that would make a more sustainable local economy. 
And if we were all doing a little, and they say, well, okay, now what if the farmers as a whole, okay, even if the individual farmers more productive, right? The farming as a whole, we don't have all these sacks of grain everywhere we can store up and feed people with. If people would start producing 10, 15, 20, 25% of their own at a local level, then the farmer doesn't have to make up 100% for us or 98% for us like they're doing right now. Let's go back to this guy's article. Um, Throughout history, farmers or anyone trying to grow food have done two things. First, they've tried to alleviate whatever is limiting local productivity, usually by irrigation and add fertilizers. Okay, and what do those two things do? When we irrigate the ground, it opens up, and when it goes into a period of drought, it opens up further. It dries out further, and more of it blows away. When we add fertilizer, conventional fertilizer, NPK, to a field, we accelerate that process, and we accelerate the death of the soil organisms within it. Fertilizer in itself isn't evil. I don't despise fertilizer. I despise its application. Because what happens is we irrigate the field and we till the field until it won't produce any more on its own. And then the magic man from Monsanto comes and we dump NPK fertilizer on the field. And then it starts growing again and we go, screw taking care of the soil. I don't need manure. I don't need to till stuff in. All I need to do is mix this stuff up every year, spray it on my field, dump it on my field, plow my field, and plant it. And then that works for a few years. But then we have to use more irrigation and more fertilizer, and that further takes away from the farmer's profit and bottom line. So we give him a bigger subsidy so that he'll just keep doing it because he's right on the edge of saying the hell with this and quitting. So then you and I say, we, well, it's cheap, but it's not because we're paying for it out the other end. And then we kill the soil further and further and further. So these two great practices, when they're practiced the way we do in modern agriculture, kill soil. And that's why if you go to a farmer's field right now, I challenge you, go out to a mainstream farm right now, dig up the soil and look at it. And in fact, right now it'll look better than it will any other time of the year. That's as good as it's going to get because it's winter and it's cold and it's wet. Go look at it in August. Go look at it in August and tell me that there's any life left. In that soil. And that's where we're at. So uh, let me continue going on. But raw productivity itself is of little use. If seedlings I keep pulling up are any guide. If I left my veg plot for a few years, it would quickly become wood ash with an understory of holly and yew. Okay, here's the problem with that. This infers that what a permaculturist would do in his situation is let everything go and let holly and yew grow. And that's just asinine. That's not permaculture at all. The permaculturist would actually sit down and look and go, okay, why are holly and yew growing in this place? Holly and yew would tell me that there are certain nutritional deficiencies for other plants. In other words, there are certain minerals that the holly and yew can get to here that these other plants cannot. And holly and yew would make these bioavailable. So instead of pulling them out, maybe I'm going to cut them down and drop them on the soil and use that production to feed my other plants until they success to a level where they're big enough that they suppress the holly and yew on their own. That's, that's one option, right? And then you know, the, the person would want to pick on that option. Well, it grows faster. No, because there's a lot of other things we need to look at. We could also say, well, what productive plant emulates holly and yew? And what can I put in there that's actually productive in that space? Because here's the reality, and this is where modern agriculture fails. Something is going to fill the niche. Something is going to fill the space. If you have a weed of any kind or an undesirable plant of any kind growing anywhere, any place in the world at any time, it's there for a reason. Think about how hard you have to work to make a tomato grow. You have to take the seed and take care of it and start to plant it, transplant it, and water it and care. And then these things just show up all by themselves. Now, let me tell you something about tomatoes. In places where conditions need a tomato, they show up all by themselves as well. There's places where people would look at a tomato and call it a weed. And in fact, at one time they did. At one time they were primarily grown in America's ornamentals because people thought they were poisonous. See, that's ignorance. That's lack of understanding. So another thing that I might do is say, what productive plants will occupy this space instead of allowing Holly and you to occupy this space. Perfect example. Real-world example that I just figured out myself for my piece of property. Out in the front of my deck, I've got this sloping piece of land. doesn't get a lot of sun. It's going to be really hard to improve its fertility. Lots of rock and gravel mixed in there. And what keeps growing up there are pine trees. 
Now, I have cut down a lot of pine trees on my property because they're in my way. And there's other things I want to do with that space. And I've gotten this, you know, feedback on Facebook and YouTube. You're killing all the trees. I've got five acres of trees. I'm creating some clearings. Pine trees are where those clearings are. That's the land that I have to work with. So it's not like I hate the pine tree. There will always be pine trees on my property. They do serve uses. I've said these are useless pine trees. And people are like, oh, pine trees have use. Yes, pine trees have use, but these ones do not. They're in the way. So it's okay for us to remove things when they're not useful to us in the function they're performing there. But we have to supplement that. We have to put something else in there. So my wife likes the pine trees because they're pretty. And they look cute when they're little. I don't like them growing on this steep bank. With shat, with the, no, nothing will ever be a deep root system because just about a foot and a half down is solid white uh, uh, quartz slab. I don't mean pieces. I mean slab. So if a pine tree grows there and gets too big and I get a windstorm, down on the house, right? And then some of the objectors would say, well, permaculture just wouldn't cut the tree down. He would if it was going to fall on his house, and then he would do something with the material. So I have to look at that and go, okay, well, what fits in there that's, that, will, that will function like the pine tree and gives us something useful? I need an evergreen that's fast-growing, that can deal with harsh sun and shade, And I need it to perform a function, and I need it to be able to cope with having a shallow root system. It needs to be very, very hardy, and if it had coniferous needles, it would be more like the pine tree and more likely to survive <gasps> rosemary. So we go through there this spring, and we're going to plant the whole thing with rosemary. Rosemary will only grow a couple feet tall. It will occupy the space. It will take up the nutrients. It will fill the role. Will there still be pine trees? Sure. Will I still cut them down? Sure. Will my wife stop yelling at me when I cut them down because she has something else now? Absolutely. Will this eventually stop the pine trees? It will slow them down. And then once those are in there, I can go in with other hardy herbs and I can cover that whole hill with hardy herbs that can handle the dry conditions that exist there. Since it's in a zone one, because it's directly off my deck, if it does need irrigation, it's easy to irrigate. And I can turn this useless piece of land into something productive. And I'm not fighting nature. I am understanding what I'm being shown. I'm accepting the feedback and I'm adapting to it. And this is what clowns like this guy don't understand. He'd say, well, we need to grow wheat. Well, you're not going to grow wheat there. Okay, that's not a place where anybody's going to grow wheat. And, and I think that, it, you know, it, it's definitely understood that by permaculturists uh, that annual gardening and main crop production is part of the system as a whole. Let me read one of the commenters' objections here to you real quick. I love what the guy said. Here we go. Uh, it took me a second to find it. Um A.D. Adam G.R., I guess, is the guy's handle. Permaculture was never just about forest gardening. On the very first page of the first very first permaculture book, Permaculture One, it says, It is recognized that annual cultivation is an integral part of any self-supporting system. It is taken uh, as understood that gardening for annuals is part of any permaculture system. But even there, permaculture has come a long way in 35 years since that was first published. It has evolved into a design system which incorporates far more than just gardening and land systems. It is based on principles which can be applied uh, to either the design process or to judge just about anything. And if it fits, it can be drawn under the permaculture banner. banner. Google permaculture principles. I couldn't agree more. So, again, see, it's the objection that people have uh, that, that say that you look at and go, the problem is your objection doesn't apply. Let me uh, let me go into this one here. The trouble is that the average modern gardener has little use for basketry materials, fodder, game, or sap products. Um, that's just stupid. That's it's not the point. It's that if we're going to look at a system, a whole design system, and and tell the world, hey, this can do all the things that we need done. That I'm telling you, there are people that need basketry materials, fodder, game, or sap products. Right? There's an entire state. That makes a tremendous amount of its if its if its economy on sap products. It's called Vermont. It's called maple syrup, fool. The honey industry is a massive industry. Um, then he's like, the only nut mentioned is chestnut, which is a non-starter where I live. Hazel isn't mentioned, but if it it wouldn't matter if it were since where I live, hazelnuts are just another way of feeding squirrels. See, this is another just the the level of ignorance being just demonstrated here, and this is where people go. But all the trees for permaculture don't work in my biozone. You're wrong. 
Because it's any tree that works. Again, what, we're, what you're supposed to look at then is say, okay, they mentioned chestnut and whatever the thing is he read, right? Which was this one-dimensional thing about one area. And you go, well, chestnut doesn't work here. Or it takes too long to get into the production that I need for this piece of land or whatever. No, that's just, that's not the way that you look at it. What is the function of the chestnut tree? What are its functions? What are its outputs? What are its needs and requirements? Well, primarily, it's an overstory tree. It's a canopy layer tree. So we need to put something in that space that's a canopy layer tree. It produces an edible yield in the form of a nut. So we can look for a nut or a fruit that also produces a similar edible yield. It produces fuel wood through cosmosing. Uh, or more actually, more, more likely with a chestnut pollarding, which is where we, we cut it back high up and we get great wood, uh, that we can use for, for craft, crafting. Chestnut wood is a beautiful wood. It's a good fuel wood, the part of it that we cannot, uh, use for crafts or for, uh, timber production. Long term, and by the time it, ex it, it reaches its end of life, it's a really high quality piece of timber. So then the job of the designer is not to sit there and go, I don't like that couch. We're not going to have a couch. It's to find a couch that fits in the room. I mean, how simple is it to understand that? So now what I have to do, if I want to, if I even want to emulate that particular system that that, that chestnut tree was going in, is I have to need to find a tree that produces an edible product, grows up into a canopy structure, pollards well so I can use the fuel and craft wood, grows into a nice, huge tree that has end-of-life cycle, high-quality timber yield. And if I find that, that fits in that place. Just like when I buy a couch, the first question is, does it allow enough butts to sit down and, and face the right direction in the room? And then I can worry about the color and what I like and what I don't like. I mean, these objections uh, are completely ridiculous. It's still on agroforestry here. He's like, realistic sources of starch are virtually absent, presumably since all the candidates contrive the principles of permaculture, i.e. they require cultivation, so somebody somewhere still needs to be growing potatoes and cereals unless you never want another chip, buddy. Oh, you just... You, you see, it makes me sad, honestly. Because it's such a misconstrued argument. It's, it's so not the point. First of all, we're, we're, you're, again, we're focusing on just the forest garden, but you know, you want, you want starch in a forest garden? Any forest has multiple dimensions and eventually will come out into an edge. In fact, there's like thousands of edges in there, but the, the easy edge to understand is that we'll come from the canopy and we do have some understory, but that understory will eventually kind of creep out at the, at the, the forest edge where there's what we would think of more as a field or a meadow. And in there, we're going to have an herbaceous layer. We're going to have a massive number of climbers at that edge. We're going to have a lot of ground cover. Because in the deeper part of the forest, we've got all the leaf litter and fallen debris and everything covering the ground. But out in this more field environment, this more edge environment, we don't have a lot of leaf litter. We don't have as much material to make up. We don't have you know two and a half feet of leaves hitting the ground every year, every square inch. We have some stuff falling down, but nowhere near as much. So something has to occupy that space, so our ground covers are going to come in. And we can grow tons of starch crops if that's what you want right there. We can, we can come out in front of that a little bit, and a wheat field surrounded by forest will be much less plagued by disease and problems and erosion and have a much easier time remaining fertile, and we don't have to plow, right? We simply have to cut back and replant, Or even if we plow, we plow in a key line arrangement, and we only do it in, in, by opening the soil in rifts instead of completely turning it. There are all types of options here as long as we meet the ethics and the directive. And then these systems all work together. So it's kind of like saying a car doesn't work because there's nothing to stop the car. Well, yeah, there is. There's brakes. No, but the article I read about the car only talked about the tires and the steering wheel and, and, the, and the seat and the body. So not only is there nothing to stop the car, there's nothing to make the car go, because that article didn't say anything about a motor. Well, you see, nobody says anything dumb like that, because everybody understands a car. They understand the basic mechanics of a car. You have an engine, you have a transmission, you have an exhaust system, you have a fuel system, you have axles, you have wheels, you have tires, you have brakes, you have suspension, Right? These things are all taken for granted because we see the car go down the road. We see the car stop. We see the car turn. We see the car handle a relatively high-speed maneuver. We see all of these things work. But don't think when they didn't come out with the first cars, people went, those things go too fast. Everything's, everybody's going to get killed. You know, when they were doing like 18 miles an hour. 
That's that. That's what people said. Everybody's going to get these crazy high speeds, man. Everybody's going to die. The roads hadn't come up to the level of the system yet. The system design of the vehicle itself was still in its early stages. And that's how these people with these objections, because they really don't understand what the system is. I'm going to stop really critiquing this guy's article, because it's pretty easy to do. Um, this is kind of like shooting a deer when he's got his head stuck in a fence. Right, his antlers are stuck in barbed wire. You you don't shoot that deer, dude. Uh, maybe you do, but if, if there's any way you can do it, you're kind of like that's not right, and you kind of shake the fence and and you let him go on, and you you find another deer because it's not hunting now; it's just killing. And if it's in a situation where you can't get out, maybe you do, but then it's a mercy killing. You didn't hunt that day, right? You harvested, and you know the difference. And 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 just continuing to beat up on this guy, it's a mercy killing, right? I mean, the guy has he's totally defenseless here. So I want to talk to you more about, uh, from the agricultural standpoint, some of the things that we need to understand that to to realize why this stuff works. The biggest thing is that we're building soil. And I just gave an interview with Paul Wheaton. It was over two hours long. He's got it up now. I'll put a link to it today. We talked about uh, 11 lessons from the forest. And the final one that I said in there was everything about modern agriculture is wrong. And Paul had a real hard time with it, but yet he couldn't object to it because he knows enough that he can't object to it. And a lot of people would object to it, but it, they don't know enough yet. And I want you to think about this. When we grow food, every single bit, of what that food becomes is based on only two things, the life in the soil and the nutrient in the soil below it and the energy from the sun above it. All right? And water is a catalyst for that to happen. So irrigation, whether it's natural occurring, whether it's man-made, the water really is a source of energy. It's a catalyst for the energy. It allows the transportation of energy. It allows for the nutrient uptake. It allows for the system to function. But the, the genesis... Nothing comes out of the water. The water goes in and it's transpired out in the same form. It goes in as H2O, it comes out as H2O. Everything that remains, and even when we, we bite into the apple and there's some water and there's just water, the sugar, the pectin, the nutrient, the vitamin, every single thing in the food that nourishes us, including the steak you eat because the cow ate the grass, And the grass did this for the cow, and now the cow is passing the nutritional value on to you. Everything comes from the sun and the soil. And you can't say one's really more important than the other, but you, you have to look at them both and say, really, we can't do one without the other. And we can do artificial light. That's an energy sink, but we can do it. But it's still filling the function. We can, do, we can grow plants in gravel, but we're just changing the soil type to gravel. Right? And no matter what we do, we have to provide this nutrient. So we know that that plant is dependent on that soil and the life in that soil. If we're constantly killing the soil and degrading the soil and make the soil worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, sooner or later we run out to a point where we can't do it anymore. I also want you to think about how modern agriculture is working with the GMO crops. Now this is really important to take in. This, is, this might be the most important thing I ever say to you about genetically modified organisms, and it has nothing to do with what happens to you when you eat them or the residues they have on them. We take a field, and we go out and we tell Farmer Joe, hey, Farmer Joe, you grow soybeans, right? And Farmer goes, yep, I grow soybeans. I like growing soybeans. That's my money crop. And we say, okay, Farmer Joe, we've got a great idea for you. We got this soybean, and you can spray our soybean with Roundup. And Farmer Joe goes, why the hell would I want to do that? And I said, do you have weeds? He goes, yeah, I got weeds everywhere. So here's how it works, Farmer Joe. You put your soybeans in. And after they've been growing for a while, you spray the whole field with Roundup again, and it'll kill the weeds, and the soybean will keep growing. And Farmer Joe goes, come on. And they say, you know what? Let's show you how it works. So they take a little patch of soybeans, and they've grown from their genetic seed, and they spray it with Roundup, and two days later, it's still green and growing better than ever before. Farmer Joe goes, well, hell, it works. How much is it? It doesn't cost that much more, and your yields are going to go up. So Farmer Joe buys it, and he puts it in, and he sprays it, and it works. And he has a great soybean yield, and everybody goes, yay. And Monsanto's price of their stock goes up. So next year, when Farmer Joe gets back to a soybean rotation in that field, what's he do? He phones up his, his, his local ag rep, and they buy some more seed and some more Roundup, and they do it again. And the weeds start to get a little bit more resistant. So he says, well, hell, and they just spray it twice. And now Monsanto's stock goes up even higher. But I don't care if Monsanto makes money. That's not the problem here. Now I've sprayed the field twice in a single growing season. And I get to a point where I'm doing that. And let's say it's still working. It's still working now. Okay. But 
Farmer Joe decides, I'd like to grow something different in this field now. And he decides he wants to grow it different legume. Let's say he wants to take about an acre of his field and he wants to grow a real money crop. He wants to grow something like green beans. And he goes out there and he tills the soil up and he amends it a little bit because he knows he's been abusive to the soil. And he puts down whatever he thinks he needs and he seeds that thing with green beans and they don't grow. Why won't they grow? I mean, he could be trying to grow tomatoes and have real problems here with fungus, rot, and disease, and, and lethargy, and everything else, but he can't, he definitely can't get a, a bean to grow. His soil is saturated in Roundup now. At this point, the land has been ba basically destroyed for a period of maybe five to 14 years until all of those things break down. Now, we can go in there, we can accelerate that recovery. We can speed it up. But, What if Farmer Joe happens to be farming 10,000 acres that have been treated this way for five or six or seven or ten years? There's your modern agriculture. There's the system we can't possibly give up. That's, that is the system. And it's what I've said before about genetic crops. It's not that they're modifying them, which is a problem in of itself. I don't want to make light of that, but it's not my first concern. My first concern is what are they modifying it to do? And when you're modifying a crop, to be tolerant of an herbicide, and you're drenching the crop and the ground with the herbicide for season after season after season, you're setting up in a condition where only the genetically modified crop and highly resistant weeds will grow. Now, why are the highly resistant weeds growing there? Let's say that Farmer Joe said, to hell with it, I'm calling it quits. And none of his kids want to farm, and they just said, to hell, and they just leave that field. For the first year, it just looks like crap. And then the second year, it starts to grow back, and there's all kinds of nastiness in there. You know, there's just the stuff that like not even an animal wants to eat. I mean, it's just a tangled mess of crap. That's the restorative process. All the things that have been damaged by the way that the land's treated, the plants most capable of healing the land start showing up. And then they start to success forward. And what we're probably going to end up with in the eastern United States is a great big pine woodland. And in the western United States, depending on where we're at, we might end up with a you know a lodgepole pine wilderness, or we might end up with a, a prairie. But none of it's really going to look the way that it did 500 years ago. Because we've done too much damage. If we want to restore that primeval character, in some ways it's almost impossible to do today because, I'll get to that in a minute. But if we want to do that at all, we have to step in and we have to speed the process along. And the thing is, as the designer, we can design each acre, we can design each foot to provide functions for humanity. And it doesn't mean we get rid of all the cornfields. It doesn't mean we get rid of all the soybean fields. But it means the ones we have there better be caring for people, the earth, and returning surplus. We, when we, we take trees off property and we put them in a big pile and we burn them, that's not return of surplus. If we were to put them into the earth as hugaculture beds or shred them and throw them on the, on the earth as mulch, that would be a return of surplus. Even if we timber the trees, there's a tremendous amount left over. I'm watching them clear cut just down the road from me right now. And they're timbering. It's big, beautiful pine forests that are taking the wood yield. Fine. Take the wood. We need houses. We need wood. I go to the you know, Home Depot or Lowe's and buy wood often. I'm not saying we can't do that at all. But what, what's left? Big giant piles that are out there smoking right now. Now, even if they want to put that back, if they're going to say, okay, this 20 acres is going to be a pine forest, we're going to plant it over and over again and continue to har harvest pine out of it. I'm not thrilled about that. I'm not happy about that. But if they took all of the material that's left over, put it through a great big shredder, and threw it on the ground when they replanted, they would get their result faster too. Because it's a design principle of permaculture. It's not producing waste. It's returning the surplus back to the soil. And then the soil would actually build and the thing would success more quickly. And the edges would ferret themselves out faster. And, and this is what the system really is. So the other problem, and I think this is a real problem right now, and it's well-meaning people causing it, and they're not even doing anything wrong. It's the interpretation of what they're doing that's the problem. It's the observer that's the problem. So Bill goes on YouTube and he builds an herb spiral, for instance. Bill Smith, who made him up. And he says, this is permaculture. And people look at that and go, cool. 
And Bill goes, okay, this is how the herb spiral works, and it takes up less space, and my drier herbs go at the top, and my more moisture-requiring herbs go on the bottom, and my shade-tolerant stuff I can plant behind it, so it's out of the sun, and this is permaculture. And people go, wow, that's permaculture. And then they go look at somebody else's garden and go, well, he's not doing permaculture, he doesn't have an herb spiral. Again, that's that's like saying that you're, the guy that built your, your house wasn't an architect because he didn't use bricks because he built your house out of wood and steel and glass. He chose different materials. He chose a dis- different assembly. He chose a different architecture style. <laughs> he, he didn't do a cookie-cutter house with brick and, and, and vinyl the way that everybody else in that neighborhood did it. It's something unique. And we can be as unique as we want to be. And I think there's a ton of stuff out there. People put together hugu culture beds. And I'm doing it myself. This is my hugu culture bed. When they start, I, I think it, it's actually damaging to constantly say this is permaculture. Because we don't sit out there and we don't say this is gardening. Or we don't say this is harvesting. People understand that, hey, I'm picking blueberries today. Well, they know that's harvesting. We don't say it like it's some defining characteristic. I think we need to work more on teaching what permaculture is and then providing examples and be sure that as we're doing that, we're, we're, we're showing people these are components. These are, these are parts of the wardrobe. This is not the system. This is not the permaculture. It, it, it really bugs me when people say, well, that's a permaculture, without the word technique following it. Like there's a permaculture over there. Like all my all my front yard is crap, right? It's 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 Raleigh St. Augustine grass, and the green thumb doctor comes and sprays it twice a year and takes care of it. But my permaculture is over here in this one little thing. Well, you're applying permaculture techniques over there, but you you're not practicing really full scale whole scale permaculture, and that's okay. That's okay. It's a starting point, and hopefully it'll lead you forward. And hey, if people gave up 50% of their lawns and turned it into things that followed permaculture techniques, even the thumb doctor spraying would be less of a problem. It still suck. We still need to get rid of more of it, but it would be less runoff into our water system. There'd be less damage by it. There'd be less resource intensive. And, and that's the thing. All of this argument about, well, well, permaculture can't, we have no idea what it's capable of yet, but we already know that it's capable of more than modern agriculture. It just has to be implemented and tried and installed. And we have to find ways that the two bridge to each other so that you can go out to the farmer that has 500 acres in corn and say, how can we transition this? How can we not get rid of the corn? But I mean, and then the other thing is all these modern farmers, they're all wrapped into the subsidy game. And once you take the subsidy, you're under the thumb, you're under the control. And there are farmers that make a loss to keep the subsidy, which just doesn't make any sense to me at all. It just doesn't. I, I, I don't understand how that possibly is going to work out in the long term. So, folks, I, I know I was kind of a little bit all over the place today, but it's, it's a subject I really wanted to cover. It's a subject that I really want people to understand. And I, this is all I want out of you. The next time you have an objection or hear an objection, I want you to think about it from the standpoint of the ethics and the directive. If permaculture can't or doesn't work or whatever, then we can't be responsible for ourselves and our children. We can't take care of the earth. We can't take care of people, and we can't figure out how to take our surplus and, and, and put it back. That's, that's when somebody says you can't or it won't. That's what you're saying can't and won't too, which just doesn't make any sense. And all of the things that you see people doing, both in the agricultural aspects and in the business aspects, are just component pieces, parts. What we're learning is architecture. And everything else is just technique that builds into it. And I believe that if you start applying those types of thinking and processes to your lives, they'll make things better, not just from your homesteading and your food production, but in your business life, in your social circles. I believe that this applies everywhere if we will simply allow it to and look deeper and actually understand the objections and actually understand what we're objecting to. So I know I took a few shots at the guy that wrote the article. But I really think that it's a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge. And my whole goal here is to always increase your knowledge and understanding. Hopefully I've done that for you today. I've got a great week coming forward for you. Jeff the Berkey guy will be on tomorrow. Uh, and uh, Joel Salat will be on at the end of the week. We have another guest for you lined up in there as well. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they know. TVs 
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show you.